Welcome to Bring on the Mess podcast, a show where we have real conversations about how to embrace life's messiness and how we find ways to show up and uncover our true selves. I'm Lisa Lee, the Chief Clinical Officer at For All Seasons, and today I am here with Dr. Dan Hughes, who is a expert in reactive attachment disorder and developed an amazing model called DDP. And what I am learning through this training that he's giving here for the midshore of Maryland is that DDP can really be used for any family. So tell us a little bit about this model, Dan, and how you developed it and what you noticed. And let's start with that. Oh, sure. Sure. Uh, I'm real happy to be able to share my ideas and thoughts because I get so excited about DDP. Over the years, I found it can make a difference with very, very traumatized children and their families who struggle in everything they could think of, good people, and they're not able to help the, the child move beyond the trauma and form a good relationship with them, which is what attachment is all about. So years ago, I wasn't able to help these children very well at all, and I didn't quite understand why, because I had decent training in working with children and was able to help children with less severe problems, and I wondered why I couldn't help these kids. And one little girl said to me, a foster child who was in trouble a lot, and she would do well in a family for about three months and do poorly. And I said, would you like help with this? And she says, yes, would you help me to move every three months? And I realized this would destroy her. And why would she want to move every three months? Because she thinks people wear out after three months because she's a difficult child. And she doesn't know what an attachment's about. She doesn't, didn't have an attachment, so people are interchangeable. If you have problems, just move to another place. So I realized the kids needed to learn how to form secure attachments to the, their caregivers if they've been abused and neglected in their primary home, in their first home, than if they're placed in an adoptive home or a foster home or in relationships with any adults, how do I help these kids form attachments and rely on the new adults in their life? Trust them, really, because they don't trust. So I developed a model that would bring the parent more into the therapy rather than individual therapy for the child, because it was a relationship with the parent that needed to improve rather than the relationship with the therapist. And I needed to find a way to help the parent see that a traumatized child needs to be raised somewhat differently than a child who has not been traumatized because they don't trust and routine discipline is very hard for them. They see it as abusive really and the ability to relax enough to actually experience joy is difficult too. They're very cautious about experiencing delight and joy and love and affection. That's very confusing for them and they don't trust that so they hold back. They get worn out. So I d kept tinkering over and over again with ways to reach these kids, going back to the books in terms of attachment theory and research, as well as after that trauma theory and research, as well as infant development, how infants in general develop relationships with their parents and siblings. And I used that as a guide for me to what do I do in therapy to facilitate sort of a start over. The first time, they didn't learn it well because they were being abused and neglected. So now they have a chance 
and but they don't quite know how to take advantage of the chance. So I wanted to show them how to do it. And I wanted to show parents, caregivers, how to take care of a child who doesn't want you to take care of them and who do doesn't trust you and who needs to unlearn things before they can learn other things. So that's been the process. I've been doing it for many, many years. And as you've said, I got all excited when this is universal attachments. Attachments are universal, part of being a social mammal, being a human being. You form attachments to people, keeps you safe, helps you learn how to be successful in life. You're not gonna be successful if you're a hermit. If you live all by yourself, you're not likely to be successful. So you have to learn how to relate to people. And so I started studying how people learn that and what are the processes of it and things like that. And then utilizing it in therapy, another exciting thing was I started to realize these same principles can be used with regular adjustment problems that kids have or regular struggles in a family that sometimes the conflicts are getting too big and the parents don't know what to do about it. Or something about their relationship with their child is sort of activating something that they, a trouble that they had when they were a child with their parents and how to help those parents <clears throat> sort of let go of some of their history and find another way to relate to the child than their parents related to them. So then I started to apply it to all families and blended families when there had been a divorce or separation loss for one reason or another. And with children who had not had severe trauma but still were struggling, learning how to rely on, take comfort from, and enjoy being with their parents. So I'm still doing it, really. It's a process that doesn't end from my point of view. Always something to learn. And I also enjoy teaching therapists about it because I'm so confident, so convinced it can be quite effective for a therapist to learn these interventions to, that will help them then to help any family they're working with to develop the family in a way that's in the best interest of all members of the family. I'm very grateful for the teachings in particular. For As a clinician, I'm a clinician and I've been doing it for about 25 years. <clears throat> and I remember, I was sharing the story with you the other day, I remember there was this week where I had a whole bunch of clients and they were telling me all kinds of things, mostly kids, telling me all kinds of things about how horrible I am as a clinician. And I felt so ill-equipped with how to work with this population. And I came out of graduate school thinking, I could do this. I have a lot of energy. I'm super excited. And I remember feeling so defeated that I didn't think that I can continue being a clinician at that point. And so I started to immerse myself in the attachment world and read a couple of your books and went to some of your trainings. And to hear you, so Dan's here for four days training several, about 20 clinicians. And I just get reignited when I hear this model. It is so playful and so fun and it feels so easy, but you do. You have to unlearn some old habits that maybe as a clinician or even as a parent myself that you know that I had. And so one of the things that stands out to me in the training, well, actually there's two things. One is your absolute playful attitude and how you teach, and that's been really fun. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about pace and what that means 
what the acronym stands for and how people could use that as, I don't know if you would call it a strategy, I'm not sure the best way to describe that. Sure. When I was bringing attachment theory and research into my model therapy and I realized I have to change the model a bit, that included changing the stance of the therapist, the way they engage their clients. The traditional stance of a therapist is more detached, observant, reflective, and you sort of hold back your own personal experience of the child from the child, and you just focus on them. And Well, I realize if I want to help a kid who's had relational trauma and had poor attachments, I have to relate to them in a way that's similar to how a parent relates to a child. They're not my child, but I have to relate in a similar way. Uh, which involves a much more active expression of my experience of them. So the kids who are with me, I don't use words, but I use my voice and my motions, my mannerisms, my facial expressions, so that they can see I take delight in them. Mm -hmm. I'm interested in them. I'm curious about them. I'm fascinated by them. I feel sad for them. I worry about them. I get confused about how they end up doing so many things that hurt themselves and things like that. So when I start using myself more in therapy, the children started to respond more because I'm a good human being who's responding to positive things in them that no one ever had, and these positive things start emerging more. So then I started to teach this model, and I think, well, how do I describe it to other therapists? And I thought the closest I can do is the way I am with these kids in therapy is similar to how I was with my own kids when they were little. And, well, how was I? And what was that <laughs> like? And I thought, well, it was unlikely when my kid was one and two that I would relate without playfulness. Part of the time, anyway. It, it's playful. Kids sort of evoke that in you. And it, and not just you're not telling jokes, I don't mean that, but you, things come up and you laugh about them and you're silly sometimes, and you enjoy them. So I think that's what playfulness represents, a positive attitude where I enjoy these kids and discover the positive qualities in them and have some fun along the way. That life, trauma, struggles don't have to define. You can expand into more in life so it's not just limited to the negative events that happen to you. And then I also realized with little kids, with my own kids, I was very accepting, accepting of who they are as human beings. And I separate the person from the behavior. So I don't accept all behaviors. The kid might spit at me or something or be real angry or throw something at me or something. So I set a limit. You don't do that. I'm not accepting that behavior. But I will accept, I would try to understand and then accept his motive. So help me understand. Why, why do you think you just spit at me? Was it something I said? Were you angry with me? What were you angry about? What was going on? In general, if you get angry with somebody, do you tend to spit at them? Are there other ways to deal with anger? Help me understand this. What are you doing? So I'm very accepting of the child's inner life, their thoughts, their feelings, and wishes, and I don't evaluate them. I only evaluate behavior, which is what we do with little kids in general. And little kids get it. I'm loved by my parent. Our relationship is solid. I'm a good baby, and I can't pull the cat's tail. Right, right. And I can't throw food in my brother's face. You know, certain behaviors I learn. I'm being socialized. But I also learn I'm unconditionally accepted and loved by my parent, even though they limit my behaviors. 
The third thing is curiosity. So it is, what's that about? I wonder, any idea why you did that? Because a lot of the kids who have been traumatized don't know why they do things. You ask a child who steals or fights or, you know, just gets himself into trouble, hey, why'd you do that? They'll say, I don't know. Now, parents often get frustrated by that, like the kid is not telling the truth, but I think often they're telling the truth because traumatized kids tend not to reflect very well on their inner life, on what they think and feel and do and want. So I want to help the kids to reflect, and that's where my curiosity comes in. Why do you think you did that? What was going on for you right then? Is that hard? What makes that hard? Is it always hard? Is it sometimes not hard? Are there certain people you're more relaxed with than other people? Help me understand, what, you know, that sort of thing. So it's a constant, it's not an intrusive or just getting the evidence. You know, it's not, it's not the curiosity I'm after. I'm after curiosity that is an active discovery of the other person of who you are. If a child has been traumatized in a relationship, they probably haven't been discovered in a positive way. Mm-hmm. They probably see themselves in the eyes of the abuser as, I'm a bad kid, or I'm not lovable, I deserve to be hurt. So I want them to experience themselves differently, so I communicate my experience of them, mm-hmm. which is I take delight in them, and I'm fascinated by them, and I just want to know what's going on inside. And the last bit is empathy. Empathy is, means I'm with you in your pain, in your distress. I feel it with you, and I convey my feeling, my experience of your pain to you. And I'll say things like, that must be very hard if it seems to you that your father hates you. That'd be very difficult. <clears throat> and so the empathy will help a person stay with hard emotions uh, and uh, allow themselves to think about them, and then to think about them in a way that they can go to different meanings. Because say a kid is abused, they often think they deserve it. And when I express empathy for, oh my goodness, it must have been so hard for you when your mother slapped you across the face and pulled your hair and swore at you. It must have been so hard when she did that. The empathy about, in my voice, will be, I really get the pain that you felt and how difficult it is. will help the kid, number one, rethink what happened. My empathy will convey, I don't think it's because you're a bad kid. I'm not sure why she did it, but I don't experience you as a bad kid. The empathy conveys that, <clears throat> so that's part of it. <clears throat> also, the empathy will convey, you're safe with me to explore how your mom hit you. Because if you're all alone with, it, with big negative feelings, it's usually harder to face them. But if you're with somebody you can trust, who understand them with you and support you, if you're sad and confused and frightened, <clears throat> well, empathy does that. So empathy has those both components, and then if I can experience and communicate empathy, the kids usually feel a lot safer to make sense of the hard times they've had and then re-experience them in a way that reduces their shame and fear. So many questions. So one of the themes that has come up, and I wonder if you get this question often, about well, are you saying if I accept my... And I heard you very loud and clear, which is there's a difference between accepting the child versus the behavior. I wonder if parents out there, if there's any parents or caregivers, well, am I letting them off the hook? Or what about consequences? And I don't want to make them soft. 
and I've been in this training and I know that that's not the message that you're conveying at all, that this is just a different approach and a stance. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit to some of those folks that might be thinking, well, you're letting them off the hook. Why can't, why can't we, you know, give them more consequences? What would you talk about with that? Uh, sure. Uh, the first thing I think I would be saying is that discipline of any sort, discipline is teaching. That's basically what it means. And so one way to teach is consequences, sure. Another way to teach is modeling. Mm -hmm. So if I scream at my child, child, don't you yell at me, that's probably not a good way to teach, don't scream. Right. Another way is coaching. Another way is practicing. So consequences don't have to be the only way. Sometimes just a natural result of what the child does is enough. You don't have to add another thing. The child's not likely to do it again. Also, my stress is that in general, I want to influence the child. I want them to become more like me if I'm a good person, have good habits, have good empathy for other people and sensitivity to people and help people and stuff. So I want that. And what we have found really over the years is that if a child has a good, safe relationship with me, really trusts that I love them unconditionally, that child is much more likely to be open to my influencing them by giving them feedback on their behavior. Mm -hmm. And they were more likely to want to be like me. If my relationship with them is poor, they're more likely to disregard my feedback, including my consequences, or the consequences will work in the short term but not in the long term, or they'll try to sneak away and get away with stuff so in general, if I only rely on consequences and don't rely on building the relationship where the child feels unconditionally accepted and enjoyed and validated by the parent, I'm probably not going to get very far. And it's hard to say sometimes, because this is what it is, I like all parts of you. I'm not accepting the behavior but I love and appreciate all parts of you. Mm -hmm. and because the other thing that I have learned and appreciated is let's drill down a little bit. Let's understand also what's the purpose of the behavior. Mm -hmm. So I have to have a relationship, which is key, in order to do those things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Correct. Without the relationship, the child won't explore with me what's going on that causes them to do the behavior. And if I don't know the reason, I might pick the wrong consequence. Right. So I take away something from the child to limit him, to teach him not to do a certain thing. And later I realized he did it in order to help a friend. Mm. Well, if I had known that in the first place, would I have used that consequence? Maybe not. If I can support him and let him know I admire his desire to help his friend. That's lovely. He has a friend and he wants to help his friend. Then he's safe now with me and he knows that his intentions are good and I agree with him. That was a great intention. And then I could explore with him, okay, so you were hoping to help your friend and then it didn't turn out too well. And then you did something that actually got the teacher upset because this interfered with the class. So in some ways I hurt the teacher. So does that make any sense? Any ideas about another way to help your friend? any ideas about why I'm wondering about that and raising that issue. So I'm helping the child to see that their decision to help their friend by doing it that way was probably had a negative effect on the teacher, for example, or his, his own life. 
So, <coughs> excuse me. That's one thing I would say. Another thing you said about, you know, if I express empathy and understanding and support, the child will get soft. People worry about that. When a kid is safe, they get soft, and we got to toughen them up and make them hard, make them able to deal with hard times in life that they have to face. Right. My response is that contradicts all the research we have. We're talking thousands of studies showing that securely attached kids at home are pretty independent, pretty strong, or able to deal with adversity in real life outside of the home much better. Now, why is that? Because the home is different. In the home, the core of home is safety. The core of home is unconditional love. That's what makes a family a family, as opposed to a school or a neighborhood even, or acquaintances. So I have to help convince folks that if you give safety in the home, unconditional love, and you give consequences or discipline or teaching, sure, but it's in the context the kid never has to worry about being abused or neglected or abandoned, disregarded, set aside, doesn't have to worry about stuff like that. The child will have an inner strength when they come out of the home to deal with adversity in the real life. They'll be less likely to do things to please people less likely to do things to upset people so they can be the boss and get away with stuff. If they have a safe, strong relationship with their parents and have attachment security, there's a good chance you're gonna have pretty strong, strong kids who are also fairly social kids. So just in wrapping up, one of the things that <clears throat> you had talked about today was there was a study from University of Minnesota and the research that was done. And if I'm remembering right, it was that it takes one, I mean, ideally we're getting this at home and we have a safe environment with our caregivers. But if that's not happening and there's other people that are out there that could potentially influence a child, there is an importance in having a relationship that is safe for that child to grow up with. Am I remembering that research correctly? You certainly are. It was a study of resilience. Resilience is seen is, you know, I've had a lot of hard times in life, but now I'm doing really well. I'm socially, I'm appropriate, I achieve, I enjoy, all that stuff. I have what we all hope to have. And yet I had a hard life. And the question was, what makes people resilient? And for a while there was debate, you were born with it, that... You're either born with it or you have it or you don't. Well, that was proven to be false. And the more they looked at it, the more they understood that resilient kids are those who have a good relationship with at least one adult, ongoing relationship with at least one. It doesn't have to be permanent. This teacher this year may make all the difference between a child who had a very difficult outside the school life all the difference of that child making it as an adult and not making it because something that happened with that particular teacher over that course of the year helps the child to realize, hey, wait a second, I'm a good kid. I can do this. I have confidence in myself. I can get support when I need it. I can learn things when I make a mistake. That child is going to feel about themselves, have a confidence that's going to help them to get through hard times and also help them to know I can have good relationships with good people. So that's, that was what the study is about and shows the crucial importance of relationships in, in child development. 
Well, I appreciate that, and we appreciate having you here. And oh, it's good to be here. Yeah, so thank you for joining us sure. on Bring on the Mess, and we look forward. We have another day and a half with mm -hmm. Dr. Dan Hughes to teach us a little bit more, and we look forward to seeing everybody or hearing from everybody the next time from Bring on the Mess. Thanks so much. Very good. Thank you.